I tend to be like just uh, I love new ideas. I love learning. Uh, I enjoy uh, change to a certain extent. And so sometimes I can get pretty scattered. Like sometimes I lose track of like what's my primary aim with mm. that because I just love to listen to, you know, what's what's new out there? What's, a, you know, what's the new podcast? What's mm. some new article or whatever? And it's hard for me at times to like, okay, no, this is, these are my values. I need to uh, use these to, to steer me, to keep me on track, to uh, point me in the direction I need to continue going to, to provide value the best way I can. I, I can't just be, I, I guess uh, the best way to describe that is I would love to just stay in school for the rest of my <laughs> life. Like, that I, doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to be a career student and just continue to take classes and classes. But and that's classes. the beauty of practice. Yes, it is for sure. Uh, and so really my, my aim with my practice is to try to mold those two things together, right? So continue to learn, continue to grow, but also uh, to enjoy, uh, you know, giving that what I have learned to my patients as right. well and to the community. Um, so uh, what I was going to say, basically, we, you know, our core values for our practice, number one is connect, uh, connect with others. Uh, connect deeply, and that's these are all four core values that I remind myself of my uh, myself every day. These are uh, personally things that I they're maybe interpreted a little bit differently, but kind of the the big thing is uh, really the same. The message is the same, but uh, it's it's connect. It's connect is also like empathy. It's hospitality. Uh, it's this this mindset that we're here for you. You know. Um, the next one is generosity, generosity or giving and not holding back. Um, and that a lot of times we think of generosity in terms of, uh, financial, like we're trying to give, uh, well, the reality is we're in a business, you know, we're not here to, to give everything away. We need to make money. So, uh, generosity is more of like the, the classical understanding of generosity of more of our presence. Like we're giving our presence. And we're giving everything. We're not holding back any information because at the end of the day, what we're here for is really just to help people make great decisions, right? That's at, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how we do that. It doesn't matter if it's there. I say online, you mm. know, through telehealth or uh, maybe not even a, you know, using an auto refraction or mm -hmm. whether it's, uh, um, you know, no matter what it is. As long as we are helping our patients make the best decisions about our eyes and we're keeping ourselves as that consultant or that expert, that's the main thing, you know? So it's keeping that really big long-term view. And I see that as generosity. Yep. Um, and then the next one is just continuous improvement. It's growth. It's a, it's a mindset of like, I may not be very good at something now, but I know that I'm going to put the work in and get better at it. Yep. And I may not be the greatest, but don't care. I'm going to continue to, you know, incremental improvement. Uh, and then the last one is just celebrate, <clears throat> you know, so, or it's enjoy, celebrate, celebrate, you know, goodness, truth, beauty, wherever you find it. So celebrate when our, you know, neighbors, our pract other practices, our colleagues are doing well, um, celebrate, uh, and find value and goodness, you know, in the community and all that. So celebrate when you've got a great new yeah, remodel exactly. and enjoy it. Exactly. Celebrate yesterday. We had our our one employee, you know, uh, it was her first year. She's doing awesome. celebrated a year for her at the practice. So, you know, all those things. And that's what makes it fun. Yeah. You know, so, so one of the things that, that you and I've discussed a lot is 
the idea of continuous improvement and uh, and uncertainty. Yeah. And so um, I think that applies a lot to clinical practice mm-hmm. and a lot to one of my core values, which is trying to make sure that we're always, as you said, always improving and always in and trying to, how do we push a line? How do we push a boundary where we're, where we can know that patients aren't in danger? Mm. We can kind of sort through what is most likely to occur with this patient and what are, uh, you know, what are the horses and zebras? Yeah. What, do we, what do we have to worry about that we know? What are the things that we don't know? And how do we um, overcome those things so that we can make sure we're giving good care, but also not just booting a patient unnecessarily? And there is a fine line. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think understanding that line and finding it continuously allows for continuous growth, which allows you to better care for your patients in the short term and the long term. And, um, but it's a real challenge to know uh, how do I mitigate or how do I navigate the uncertainty mm. of practice? And when I look around at, at my mentors, the, the, the guys that I really feel like have, they've got it, they've figured that out. They figured out how to navigate uncertainty in a clinical situation. Yeah. So tell me about that. Yeah, great question. Uh, this is kind of a, a little pet project of mine just because I, you know, I, I just talked a little bit about Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Kyle Cludy about how to manage uncertainty in our practices and in our lives. How do we evaluate things like random, randomized controlled trials as well as our clinical experience and align that with patient preferences. It was a ton of fun to talk to Dr. Cludy. I have a conversation with him on a weekly basis. Uh, please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. A growing number of children with myopia have been coming to the doors of our practices in recent years. Optometrists across the country have answered the call to provide treatment for the condition instead of vision correction alone. Through workshops like the Brilliant Futures Acceleration Program, Practitioners have had the opportunity to share their perspectives and support those who are implementing the MySight One Day Lens into their practices. Some of the tips that resonate with me include, educate early and often with your patients, talk about this all the time, offer a myopia consultation visit, assign a myopia management team member, somebody who's gonna own myopia in your practice to be an advocate for this to patients as well as you, Communicate consistently with families, and there's great templates at mysightpro.com, and emphasize comfort and ease of use. For more information on successfully implementing MySight one day into your practice, contact your CooperVision sales representative or a myopia management specialist at CooperVision. This is kind of a a little pet project of mine just because I, you know, I, I just talked a little bit about, you know, core values and how I need them to keep on track. Equally, I feel like I'm always trying to, I think a lot about how do I make the best decision? You know, how do, how do, just like you're saying is how do we, how do I know? How do we know something? You know, the, 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 uh, the word for it is like epistemology. That's the, that's the study of, of how do we acquire knowledge, you know? So it's more philosophical, but really it's, um, how do I make the best decision for my patient when it comes down to it? And 
what evidence do I need in order to do that? And the thing that I keep coming back to, I, I guess I'll say this first, my, my, um, my disposition is always to try, like I just said a little bit ago about academia, I love being a student. My, my disposition is to lean very heavily towards a randomized clinical trial. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's a good awareness. Evidence-based medicine. Evidence-based okay, medicine. So that's one well, of the three things. Yeah, the, yeah, and that's what I wanna say is that, so if you break it down, so evidence-based medicine, that's a, that's a loaded phrase, right? right. I, think, I think we all have, when we hear that, some of us cringe, some of us, some of us get angry, uh, some of us push <laughs> the it clinicians aside. Do, yeah, sure. the clinicians yeah. do, for sure. Um, but the reality is, is I think that like there was a Oxford uh, professor that he's one of the founding fathers of, of evidence-based medicine. Uh, David Sackett is his name. And he proposed that there's a triad within evidence-based medicine. And we've probably all seen it. If you can, you know, picture it in your mind, three conjoined circles. Uh, the top circle is uh, composed of patient experiences, patient values and experiences. The bottom left, I mean, no, in, in no particular order, but the bottom left, they're usually how it's presented, are the randomized clinical trials. And then the bottom right is uh, clinical experience, or what I'd like to think of it as hunches. Hmm. And that's not despair to disparage no, no. like experiences, like that's really what it is. It's like, when we really come down to it, our experiences give us hunches, and those hunches may be true or false, right? Uh, and knowing that, understanding that, that it really is just a hunch, uh, is actually kind of freeing, mm. right? Don't you think? Yep. Uh, but well, embracing it, embracing is, yes. is freeing. Yes. Understanding that not everybody, like I think the the gut reaction for a lot of us is that, well, if I don't know what this is, I'm going to send this to somebody else who's going to yeah. know. And and most of the time, those people don't know any better than we no. do. They just understand how to figure out the uncertainty. Yes, precisely. And this whole model of those three, when you think about those three pillars, when um, when decision-making breaks down, it's when we start leaning too heavily towards one mm. out of the three or two out of the three mm. and we neglect the other. And I mean, you could go into, as we do on our Tuesday morning <laughs> runs, <laughs> uh, we could go into what's going on in the world right now with the pandemic yeah. and you could evaluate it through those three pillars. And I think there's a lot to say about that. Uh, for good and for bad, yeah. right? Uh, but when that breaks, when that decision making breaks down, I think you're probably in a position where you're neglecting one. And like I said, my my inclination or my uh, my leaning is always I, I always lean heavily towards the randomized clinical trial because that for me just provides a lot of a lot of um, uh, just I guess it it mitigates a lot of my doubts right. or help, maybe helps my insecurities about uh, hunches that I don't maybe experiences that I don't have. And that's okay sometimes, right. Uh, to lean towards that. But the reality is, is every single, when you lean towards one, every, any one of those three, they're all, they all can be weak. They all yeah. have weaknesses like randomized clinical trial. Like what are the weaknesses of a randomized clinical trial? Yeah. There's people that they aren't included in that trial that you can't apply precisely. Yeah. Right. And you, we forget about that. We do. Yeah. I, for example, Ocular hypertension treatment study. Yes. You know, you got pressure 22, not in the trial. Yep. Right. Exactly. Right. Pressure 34 or 35. Not, yeah, in, the not trial. in the trial. Yeah, for sure. Well, the other one too, that, uh, 
I like to bring up is the SCUT, you know, yeah. the uh, steroids, steroids for, for corneal ulcers. Yeah, trial. Yeah. And we constantly, maybe I'm being too dramatic here, but I feel like we constantly use that to explain what we should do for corneal ulcers. But when you look, do you know, I mean, have you seen what the, the data, like if you look at the, the 500, there are 500 patients within that. Yep. Okay. Uh, 320 of them. So well over half of them uh, were manual labor, hmm. uh, either agricultural or hmm. non-agricultural workers right. that had a foreign body and the majority of them are foreign body induced infections. Hmm. Now, from being outside. Yep. Yep. Now apply right. that to your practice. Right. That's not my practice. That's not your practice. Yeah. I mean, we constantly teach that in schools here, but in the typical, you know, primary care OD practice in, uh, in America, what are you seeing? Yeah. I mean, I've personally. It's contact lens. Well, contact lens. And we rarely see them anymore. Right. Right. Well, it's contact lens. In my, related. in my patient demographic. What, and what are you, and what are you seeing? I, what I'm seeing is I'm seeing. Peripheral, peripheral infiltrates. Peripheral, yep, infiltrates. Yep. It's infiltrates. Yep. It's not ulcers. It's not ulcers. Yep. And so that completely, that's completely different. Yep. You know, so I would say nine times out of 10, if I've got a, a, a corneal ulcer, which is, really isn't an ulcer, truly, right. it's an infiltrate, um, then I'm hitting the steroids and yep. the antibiotic is not necessary. So we can't even apply that. And when you look at it, like the, the, the group that was used for that, for that RCT that we constantly build up, there were eight contact lens wearers. Right. Eight out of the 500. Right. So yeah, it's really not like, how can you really apply it? Yeah. But yet we, we use that and we praise it. So, well, you know, to, to kind of come back to the other, um, the other push on patient preference, you know, um, Dr. Lindsay in our practice, she had a pa she's got a patient right now that, um, is a patient, longtime patient of my dad's and she's just, just, four plus SPK patient, bad dry eye. She's got Parkinson's, so she barely blinks her eyes. Um, mm. Can't put any drops in. Her husband can't get any drops in. She doesn't want to do any procedure-based treatments, right? So Lipiflow is out, IPL is out. Mm. Uh, she does. She has horrible inflammation, but what? how do you control it, right? She's she got all these other um, systemic diseases. Her, I can't remember if, my point is, is even her, she's so concerned about changing anything, right? Like even omega threes, mm -hmm. uh, to try to reduce inflammation. Um, they're not going to do that because of the amount of vitamin D that could impact some of her other medications. So she's just really concerned. It's like, so then you get to the point, it's like, you know, what do you got left? Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, and that's where patient preference goes so far in one direction. Right. right? And, and then you, your hands are sort of tied. Like I, th I think yesterday she plugged her just a 10 day plug just to make sure we're not going to make inflammation work. But she also thought one, let's improve symptoms. Let's get down. You know, she's not going to do goggles. She's not going to, so it's like not going to do scleral lenses. Not, it's like, all yeah. right, well, we're, we're scraping the bottle of barrel. Yep. And so I totally see where, uh, where you can flip and push to these other areas, right. you know? Yeah. It, the, the one, the example that I think about all the time for patient preferences is uh, I have two, uh, two glaucoma patients that I'm managing that are completely opposite <laughs> uh, and opposite in their disposition. Mm. So one of them has a incredibly asymmetric uh, IOP where she's constantly in her right eye at 30 to 34 and in her left eye, she's between 22 and 26. Mm. Uh, nothing to explain for it. It's just, that's yep. just the difference. And, uh, she 
absolutely does not want to be treated whatsoever. <laughs> she is no very, SLT, no, no SLT, nothing. Wow. She does not want any drops in her eyes. She has 0.2 nerves. Mm. I, and I always tell her, I, I, I won't use her first name, but I always just say, you know, Brandy, if you were, if yeah, you were, yeah, Brandy, uh, <laughs> you, you know, the conversation we're going to have. Yep. If you go to, you can, you know, if you went to 10 other doctors, uh, and they didn't know you as well as I know you, they would probably like force treatment almost. Right. Not really. I mean, but they would really recommend that. Yep. Um, but again, the main thing is that your nerves are healthy. We've, you know, I do, as long as you keep coming back to me, like yep. as long as I see you every six months and we do OCT visual field, uh, and check your pressures and I don't see any changes on that OCT or visual field, then we're totally fine. And she just loves that. Yeah. She just loves not having to be treated. Flip side. So that's definitely like I'm using evidence-based medicine because uh, I don't know how much clinical experience I'm adding to that. But, you know, the randomized clinical trials would say I need to treat her. Yeah. Right. Or even my clinical experience would say I need to yeah. treat her. But the patient value and expectation is no. On the flip side, I have a patient who she's probably equal age, probably in that uh, early 50s range where healthy nerves, uh, borderline IOPs, 21, 22 is her max. And she wants to be treated because mm. her sister has glaucoma mm -hmm. and, to have, and has had bad glaucoma. Yeah. So she just wants nothing to do with it. She, and she is anxious every time she comes in. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm willing to do that. Yep. I'm willing to prescribe. And that's, that's, the, it, that's the art. Yes. Right? Yes. That's the, that really is the clinical experience that really is like the, uh, the essence of why we are in the position we are in. And you can't just plug in these randomized clinical trials to a computer to make the decision for us, right? Yeah. Because it takes so much more than that. We've talked about that before too. It's like, it really just comes down to trust. Like if you are, if you're leaning really heavily towards the hunch side or the RCT side without the patient side, people are not going to trust you. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and I think um, you're, uh, it's nice to be able to, you know, I, I probably geek out a little too much when I'm talking to patients about what, what yeah. studies tell us. Yeah. But I do think that there's that being able to, to articulate that plus being able to say, this is why it's going to apply to you or not apply to you. And we could do this or that, yeah. then it does bring in the patient preference. It's like, you know, and I'm going to bring in the pandemic because it's fresh on my <laughs> mind, but um, there's, there's all these hunches that are being articulated. And then there's this misuse of randomized control trials that occurs. So, you know, the, the headline is, you know, you can reduce your risk of contracting infection by 95%. What type of risk are they talking about? They're talking about relative risk reduction, relative, not exactly. absolute risk reduction. Precisely. So, um, so one of those things that was right on my mind was, was recently about, um, uh, masking for kids mm -hmm. and, you know, you can look at a bunch of studies and it's probably safe to say that there is some benefit. And there's a, there's a big study that I think is still under peer review in Bangladesh. And mm -hmm. you and I talked about this a little bit. Mm -hmm. And essentially what, what that study found was that if you wear surgical masks, not cloth masks, but surgical masks, um, and again, they had training on proper wear and all this sort of thing, then you could um, reduce the, so the headline is, surgical masks reduce risk of COVID infection. And then you read, and it reduces it by about 11%. And then you keep reading, 
and you find that that's the that's the relative risk reduction and you find that the the people who were wearing the surgical masks had a point over a course of eight weeks had a 0.68 percent risk of contracting covid in this mm -hmm. specific population and in the 350,000 people randomized into i mean it wasn't blinded of course but randomized into mask or no mask and then the people who weren't wearing masks had a 0.76%. So it's 0.68 to 0.76. Right. 0.08% difference is your absolute risk reduction. Mm. So if you flip that, obviously, and you and you figure out your number needed to mask, mm -hmm. you're one in 1,250. So you're masking 1,250 people to prevent one symptomatic or asymptomatic infection. Now, the question that I would ask is, like, some people would look at that and say, that's still worth it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and other people, other patient preferences would say, no way, it's not worth it. Right. But, but the problem is getting to that point to at least have that conversation is so difficult. Yes. That, and then once you get there, um, again, now we can start talking about preferences. Now we can start talking about, well, what is important? Like apply it to a school population in Omaha, Nebraska. And you can say, okay, well, in our school, in our particular school where our kids go, it's about 900 students. Well, over the last eight weeks, they've all been masked still. And the assumption is from administration is that we've done good because the studies tell us that we can reduce the risk of contracting COVID if we wear masks, except that over the course of eight weeks, a randomized controlled trial tells us that we need, we need to mask 1,250 to prevent one symptomatic and we don't have 1,250 students. So the chances are we haven't done mm -hmm. any good. And so, but the point is, is like getting to that conversation is so difficult. It is. And then we can, and then one, but once we do, then we can have discussion about preferences. So anyway, I think it's just, um, and we have a real conversation about those preferences. Yeah. Right. And what means something. It, and that's, I mean, that's largely my uh, worry, not worry, I'm not worried about it, but that's <laughs> largely my concern. Like if you, if you, Think about those three, the patient values and preferences. You think about the RCTs and you think about clinical hunches. And the bedrock of all those things are trust, right? We've talked about that. It's uh, none of them work if the patient doesn't trust you. Right. And because it's all, it's always like the whole, the whole picture. Well, and if the you don't trust the patient, that's yeah. the other thing. Yeah. That patient right. that you were describing that has a pressure of 34, exactly. if you don't trust her to so, come back, then, so then you're, you're going to say, I'm going to prescribe this medication for you. And then you don't really it care anymore if she, if she comes back or if she doesn't listen to you because you've already done the Precisely. thing. And is she just going to go and leave and come back in three years right. and then she has full-blown glaucoma, she's right. lost vision, all of that. And then, yeah, I mean, you could go down the road with what happens there, but... Um, but yeah, it's all built on trust uh, because the reality is, is that we are just trying to figure out how to make a decision when there's a lot of uncertainty, <laughs> right? Right. Like we are fooling ourselves if we think that we have it all figured out. Yeah. Um, we just, we just talked about how RCTs are helpful, but they're not always helpful. There's right. a lot of problems with them. Well, even in that one and I was describing. Hunches, yeah. Our hunches. Yeah. There's a lot of problem with, problems with our hunches. We have a lot of bias. And the reason we have RCTs is because to try to mitigate some of the biases that we have uh, when we're with our clinical experience, you know. So um, then do you always need, so that's the, the other thing, and we see this a lot with macular degeneration, is, <clears throat> and I was like this, you know, um, 
so how much do we need to know? How much does a randomized control trial need to tell us mm-hmm. um, to solve those hunches? And then how can we know whether or not that randomized, con- like where would you look to say, this control trial isn't gonna tell me the stuff I need to know yeah. about early intervention or, you know, yeah. What, like what do you yeah. think about? I mean, if I'm looking at a if I'm looking at a trial and I'm or at a paper and trying to articulate or trying to understand it better, to apply to clinical practice, there's really three things that I'm looking at. One is our comparisons. Like know the comparisons. You know, we just talked about that. The scut. Like right. is it is is that patient population that they did that trial on really compared to mine? No, not really. Same thing is, uh, that's, the, that's really the main and number one thing that you really have to look at. Uh, another example of that is the DREAM study with omega-3s. Yep, yep. In my opinion, <laughs> I mean, going <laughs> Would you on, talk about that? No. Uh, in my opinion, there's a lot of different issues with that, a lot of issues people have had. Honestly, at the end of the day, it's a well-designed trial. Yeah. Like, and they did a good job. And it really did show, the results showed what they set out to do, right? right. But the problem is, is in my opinion, I am rarely adding, in a a lot of the patients, omega-3s were added because the patients were already being treated for something. Right, right, right. So, uh, but the the main thing for me is they treated moderate to severe patients. And I am rarely adding omega-3s to a moderate or severe dry eye patient. It's usually the mild. And so I know that makes it way more difficult to run an RCT, but I think you have different results if you do that. Yeah. Um, that's my hunch. Yeah, my, my hunch is that it they didn't spe- specifically look at patients who had inflammatory markers mm. or who, I mean, yeah. I, you would assume that moderate to severe patients would, but they didn't specifically look at those, you know, um, inflammatory markers. Mm. And I think if they had and excluded patients, so again, figuring out what's the mechanism that you're trying to control for mm-hmm. and trying to treat. Yep. And, and being more focused on it. So like like you, I don't I don't usually uh, shotgun omega threes. Mm-hmm. They're a very specific um, player in my yeah. armamentarium. Well, or deuce, deuce too. Exactly. First stage. Right. Yep. Right. And um, and even for me, it goes further because it's first stage in patients. I I suspect are inflammatory. Mm. <clears throat> so I think that that if we had done that, um, I think that we probably would see maybe well we might see something different. Right. Yeah. But um, so anyway, yeah. uh, I think that, that helps us. So my point, yeah. So you, you brought up the dream. You're going to say the other, the other point. So my hunch is that <laughs> yeah. that's how I would apply the dream yeah. is not to probably treat anybody that has. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think you have to be way more selective. I think you, you know, the other thing too, is not to labor on this, this study, but what does it look like when you are using, uh, the meibomian gland evaluator? You know, right. what does it look like for maybe you just choose non-obstructive MGD patients right. um, or obstructive, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, those are the little nuances there that are kind of glossed over. It's, and, and that's the problem with an RCT, you know, so, um, and you have to be aware of those things. They don't always apply. Uh, another thing I'm looking at in a study is just what we talked about with, with, uh, statistics, with risk is, are they reporting absolute relative yeah. or the number oh. needed to treat? You know, if, if they're glossing over that, that's a big sign. That's a big issue that you got to um, look into. Sometimes you can't, it's hard to find you gotta the number. You got to figure it out yourself most yeah, times. Yeah, sometimes you have to reverse yes. engineer it. Yep, you do. And the, the problem that a lot of like you, if we take this, you know, issue with looking at a, looking at a study and kind of put it in the context of the broader issues right now with the pandemic is the media has, is always reporting 
the relative risk reduction. Yep. And the reality is, is we are just terrible at understanding mm. risk when we see percentages. That means nothing to us. Like percentages really, it means something, but it's incredibly easy to mislead with a percentage. Totally right. And so um, majority of the time that you're seeing something in, in a publication, uh, it's, there's a ton of bias within it. There's selection bias. Like there is confirmation bias. Uh, you know, so most times, or I, I want to say like uh, like 50 to 75% of negative trials aren't even reported. So right. we don't even see we when even something doesn't them. work. Uh, so I guess going back to a study, those are the, the, the main two. Uh, compare well. Uh, know your chances, right? Uh, go back to like Jordan Keith's, uh, uh, a lot of his talks on that. It talks yeah. about knowing your chance, chances. That's really good. And but then, even if you, sorry, go and ahead. And consistency. Yeah. Right. So consistency means has, can this be repeatable, right? Yeah. Is this something like when I think about the MySite data, mm-hmm. um, when we're look, looking at that lens, I think there's, it was done really well. I think it's really valuable. I think it's great information. But to me, the reason why it kind of tipped me over the edge in terms of uh, treating myopia control or myopia management is because it basically confirmed <laughs> a lot of other previous trials right. very similarly, like that 50% or so of reduction of, uh, of progression. And it did it in a way that was well-run, well-designed. And then when you're confirming a lot of previous studies, then it's like, well, we have consistency now. Yep. And th- those are the things you got to look, look for. Yeah, totally. You can't just one-off. You can't one-off, you know, RCTs. Yeah. So. Well, I'm going to stop it there so I can be respectful of your time. We, we'll probably have to pick this yes, up again. Absolutely. <laughs> There's so many things. That, uh, yeah. And it's never boring to me. That's the fun part is that we have these conversations for at least an hour oh, yeah. uh, on runs every week. And um, we should probably just mic up on ends. the run. I've tried it. It doesn't sound good. It doesn't. Okay. No, no, no it, it, it's hard to edit that Although out. there's probably more like, uh, like riffing and uh, probably things that we talk about that probably should be more edited than yeah <laughs> this yeah but i also think that that's that's what's fun to listen yeah, to that's is true. that sometimes it's like wow uh, some of the off-the-cuff things are probably more yeah, interesting probably yeah. but nobody we're wants probably, to we're probably more vulnerable yeah that's sure. true that's true <laughs> which is sometimes more helpful yeah well thanks man yeah, thanks thank for doing you. this appreciate it this you're welcome fun.